Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that picks a worse team of the week than Garth Crooks. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Giving Sports. My co-host Cameron McDonald has spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. And a strange old weekend of football in some ways, uh, although totally predictable in others. Uh, we had the first half of our Champions League quarterfinals round up, and so the semi-finalists, uh, the first two of them, uh, one for each semi-final, uh, brought through, uh, and a couple of surprising and unsurprising results in the Premier League. I want to start off uh, in neither the uh, European uh, super competitions or the Premier League uh, and talk about uh, a game in another European league, namely the Eredivisie, uh, because as any any listeners who heard it last week uh, will remember, I was at uh, the Ajax game uh, this uh, week. Yes, played, so uh, you were. FCM and I just wanted to. I'm not going to take too long um, on this little detour, but I just want to start off with a uh, you know a couple of, a couple of interesting notes. Um, after that entire rigmarole, by the way, did eventually manage to get in. So you know, not the end of the world. Nice, a bit nice. of rigmarole in the first place, but but managed to get to the game uh, in the end. Brilliant stadium. How much the, were uh, tickets, by the way, of interest? Uh, they're about thirty euros. Uh, so That's very okay. reasonable uh, for someone sort of getting the tickets uh, just on a couple of days beforehand uh but yeah 30 years for a ticket uh, a really good game uh 3-1 got to see dusan tadic score uh was in the obviously uh i was on one of the ends of the um of the ground rather than sort of the corner in the middle of the pitch uh, which is great fun because they had their own sort of chart i think a lot of clubs have just a variation of this chart where one club was essentially saying like we're this side of the ground and would reply a call and response uh singing all in dutch didn't understand any of the dutch chants uh tried to sing along with some of them but <laughs> can't speak any dutch so probably made an absolute uh a hatchet job of it uh, but yeah some very nice fans as well um yeah like nice goals ix won 3-1 against fc emin not doing so hot in the Eredivisie uh this season it's actually uh Feyenoord, uh, managed by Arne Slot, which is a name you'll be hearing a lot i imagine over the summer because a lot of clubs want him as their manager um but yeah some mm. some good scran as well i went down at half time and uh, again cannot read dutch so just pointed at something on the menu and was like not, not a picture i just saw some words and i was like that'll probably be fine uh, and had like it was like this sort of meatball sandwich with satay sauce it was, it was delicious actually um and of course since we were um, in mainland europe that's a that's I'm- a strange thing to have at a football match but it, i guess it, there's it, always random things at it, football matches it was strange, but it was it was it was delicious. My uh, my compliments to the chefs at the Johan uh, Grove Arena, uh, and also yeah, being a mainland European game, got to drink some beers in the seats, which is always just a delightful uh, you know, delightful addition uh, to the match viewing experience. In my opinion, anyway, it's not for everyone, uh, but for me, uh, a couple of beers, it's all right with me, man. Mm, nice, yeah, nice, um, good stuff. Glad you had a good time. Um, any standouts? Any young players you observed that you think could be uh, the future? Well, I was a little bit disappointed because the player I was really looking forward to seeing uh, for Ajax live in the flesh was um, Mohamed Kudus, the uh, sort of young Ghanaian player they have who's been absolutely the tearing things up for them. Yeah. Um, mm. So unfortunately, he didn't play, which is a little bit of a shame. Uh, they did have a guy called Kenneth Taylor uh, in the midfield who, despite his name, is not English. He is Dutch. Uh, and he was a quite a handy little central midfielder. Uh, he was quite good uh, you know, during the game. So... He's one I'm there to sort of keep my eye on, although I was uh, not in analytical mode. I was very much in my sort of have fun mode, <laughs> uh, obviously a tourist mode. Yeah, fair. Uh, yeah, fair. But we'll see. If he if he now turns out to be world class, you heard it here first. Uh, but let's move into... Yeah, nice. I think, um, I think Kudus is sadly injured at the moment, I want to say. Yeah, he is injured. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, it, it was funny though because oh, there are a few. A good, a good game uh, in Europe there, there was like fun. a mixture. It is, and because it was Ajax, there was a mixture of players that I knew because they had been linked to other teams like here or because they had been here and sort of come back. Like, you know, Dusan Tadic being one example. Steven Bergvine was playing on the left wing. Davy Klassen, obviously like a, a classic old player. Urien Timber was, uh, I think, linked to United this uh, this last summer. So, yeah, a number of, uh, number of interesting players and a good game. There you go. Did Davy Klassen used to play for Everton? No. That sounds correct, but I don't think it is. <laughs> I feel like it's it's a name. He's been around for a long time. He did um, used to play for Everton. Did he? Yeah, I feel like uh what he like... played seven games for Everton. What a deep cut from you that is. <laughs> he's just a classic a classic player, just like pop up in an Everton shirt. Um I feel like they love a they love a rogue signing every now and then. Like Lucina Triore. Mm, yeah, no, good point. Well, we might have time to talk about Everton a little bit later, but first, let's talk about the Champions League quarterfinals. Uh, we had two of the conclusions to the quarterfinal, ta- quarterfinal ties. Um, first, uh, Napoli versus Milan. A really strange uh, meeting between these two teams for the third time in a very short period of time. Napoli have been the best team in Italy all season. I think they're about 16 points clear still. Um, but when they met them in the league a couple of weeks ago, they lost 4-0. Um, in the first leg, they also lost 1-0. Uh, this tie and people were sort of going well it's because awesome hand isn't there and you know they're not playing in their usual system but he was back for the second uh, second leg and although Napoli played I would say the better football for the majority of the first half Milan just outdid them and we're just doing really well on the counter-attack I think Rafael Liao was absolutely you know you see here all these massive numbers going around about him uh, and and tonight you sort mm. of looked at some of the some of the stuff he was doing he won the penalty which Giroud um had saved by Alex Mary. But then he had this unbelievable run for the goal. It beat about four players and just put it on a plate for, for Giroud to tap in. Um, and it was just just a fantastic... You know, anyone who signs him up, if he if he doesn't stay at Milan this summer, has, has got an absolute player on their hands. He does seem to have that that special source of a match-winning um, attacking winger. Uh, yeah, impressive game. Um, you know, Napoli almost brought it back towards the very end of the match. But um, as you say there, I think despite having... The lion's share of possession and chances. Um, Milan were pretty good for this. Um, they, uh, you know, won their first leg one nil, um, and Napoli went down to ten men. So I think, um, I think all in all, it was the right result. Um, and penalty miss on both sides, which is very rare. Um, well, penalty and, saved on both sides, which I would I would suggest is even rarer. Well, that's true. I mean, you know, a penalty not scored on on both sides. Um, but you're right. I don't remember the last time I saw. A penalty saved penalty saved. by both teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah a goalkeeper saving thought, a penalty um, by both teams. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no I, I know what you mean. Um, but you know, Victor Osman did get his goal in the end. I thought Kavarich Scaler, who has been, you know, I haven't watched every single Napoli game this season, but when I've watched, he's been incredible. Completely nullified in this game by Milan's uh, Davide Calabria, who. It's all right, but you wouldn't have thought he would have been able to pocket Cavaradona, who's been you know, striking the heart, fear into the hearts of every defender he's faced this season. Uh, but yeah, completely stood up by him. Um, you know, just slowed down the play, closed him down every time. Um, could not get involved into the game, and you know, maybe to the point where that caused his mental sort of rattles, what rattlement uh, when he tried to do the penalty. Yeah, I mean, I think um, Calabria, he, he's a good man, like he's a good one-on-one defender, but he's he's nothing special, as you said. Um, so yeah, rare. You you would expect 
a player again that has got this massive profile like Rafael Leal this season um, to have really broken out. You you expect him to be to be put in a little bit more, um, but that's how it goes sometimes. Indeed, indeed. Uh, let's talk about the other quarterfinal, uh, Chelsea versus Real Madrid. Um, Frank Lampard, eh? Came in to save the season. <laughs> and uh, That is, <laughs> honestly, it's only saved from being the worst appointment this season because of Nathan Jones. Otherwise, it would be like just... But, and I think those two are like the two worst appointments of the last 10 years. <laughs> Both of them have come this year. <laughs> I, I really don't understand what's happening. He, he came out with this system. It was like a, a 3-6-1-1, uh, but essentially like a 3-7-0 because the guy up top was Kai Havertz, who Chelsea fans will tell you is not a striker, and he himself is trying to tell you through his play is not a striker. Um, but <laughs> he was sort of playing up top, and they actually didn't start too badly. They were sort of chasing down a lot of the balls. They were closing down uh, Real Madrid. They were seeing a lot of the benefits of having effectively seven men in midfield um, because of the wingbacks. But then they created a couple of chances and the players who were on the end of those chances were players like Mark Correa and N'Golo Kante who have probably six or seven career goals combined. <laughs> so they, of course, yeah. didn't capitalise on those chances. And yeah, it was it was just like... It, it's, it's funny, you do see it happen sometimes, but it's just funny to every single time that Chelsea have firstly assembled this squad without you know a big centre-forward and then like Frank Lampard can go into this game when they are already 2-0 down, they desperately need to score two goals, uh, or three goals even. Um, oh, sorry, they need to score two goals to, to, to win, rather. It was, it was 3 nil aggregate after the after that. Um, and he's gone with, you know, leaving a load of the attacking players on the bench. It's surprising. Um, I think the, I guess the most egregious player there is um, Conor Gallagher, because he was playing in that slightly more advanced role. And good player, um, you know, very good at pressing, broke up play, fine um but yeah as you say not not uh with he doesn't have the most uh, attacking threat of any of um Chelsea's midfielders um you would expect someone like Christian Pulisic, Joao Felix, Raheem Sterling, Michaela Mudrich um to to take on that role or even to put someone else up top and and put someone like Kai Havertz in in that role um I think he, he could have done that quite well and that's that's where he had a lot of success when he was at um Leverkusen I think um it was an interesting game because Chelsea were on top in the first um, the first half of the first half. They were finding a lot of space on the wing, especially on the right wing, um, because of Vinicius Junior's. Uh, you know, it, you know, he just loves to to bomb forward and then not bomb back. Um, but Reese James, he had a solid game. He looked a bit off the pace. I actually felt like he might have just been ill, to be honest. Um, mm. I think he, he jogged over to the side at one point and like had a bit. of bit of like a gel or something like that. Um, and yeah, he just didn't seem quite fully on his game. Um, well, he, he, the he, irony... he did do something you'll be seeing on Twitter tomorrow a lot. Which is what? Which is like at 2-0 down, he like gets the ball and does like a little spin when he's in like loads of space. And I was like, oh, mate. Oh, why have you done that? Oh, <laughs> he does like a really oh, yeah, nice he, sort he of loves... like flourishy turn of the ball. <laughs> but if the player's at your back, it's very impressive. But like He's miles of space. Yeah. But but this is it, the case is exactly what, how you described, which is that you know Chelsea created some good chances, but they didn't have any good out and out strikers on the pitch, or even necessarily good goal scoring midfielders on the pitch, and as a result, they just didn't gain anything from those chances. Um, as I thought, the the irony of Kukurea being brought in to replace 
Ben Chilwell, who got a red card in the first leg, to then completely miss a chance that Ben Chilwell probably puts away was really Almost like Chelsea seeing yeah. their own fate in a way. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, there's good things to take from it, I, I, I imagine. I thought Fafana seemed pretty good. Um, you know, it's nice to see Kante back on the pitch. I do like him as a footballer. I think he's very good. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's it's a shame because they really had nothing to lose and they still didn't come out fantastically. They, they've yeah, they've uh, held their own. like... But they've lost two 0 twice. It was like Lampard was yeah two 0 twice. It was like Lampard was coming out playing for the draw, and it was like, does he not know how this works? It's not like uh, if you draw. Do you think it's like an FA Cup replay type situation here, or he's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, we'll just uh, we'll wait until a few more players, uh, you know, in the Frank system, and then we'll, then we'll play them again. Uh, I thought it was a really weird. Yeah, having like Kante. If it stays nil nil, then it's penalties, lads. Kante and uh, and Conor Gallagher seemed like the most advanced midfielders at one point, and I was like, neither of these. I mean, Con- Conor Gallagher of last season, maybe you'd want up that up that high, but Conor Gallagher this season, certainly not. Um, I also thought, speaking of Chelsea's midfielders, I had this sort of moment. I was watching Enzo Fernandez sort of running around in this game, and I had this thought where I was like, Enzo Fernandez, in, specifically in this Chelsea team, because he wasn't like this in the Argentina team in the World Cup. He reminds me of that guy that's in your five-a-side team who's like quite a bit better than everyone else. So he's like doesn't want to pass the ball because he doesn't trust <laughs> anyone else to do it, and he keeps sort of like leathering it in from range. But like often he'll test the keeper, but it'll often just like be a turnover of possession, and it's like. You can understand why he doesn't want to play to everyone else, but at the same time, you're like, look, man, like you might be better than everyone else, but you've <laughs> got to play as a team game. Like So many times, he's just like, there'll be, a, you know, Mudrick when he came on sort of making a run or or someone sort of coming off him, and he'd just be like, no, I'm just going to drive in where there's three Real Madrid players, and then he'd lose it, and you'd be like, I get it, but you can't really do that, mate. <laughs> I get it, but I'd rather you didn't. Um, yeah, there's, you know, there, there's still... Um, no real signs that Chelsea under Lampard are evolving or growing. Um, another system change. I feel like Chelsea must be setting some sort of record this season for how many different systems um, and, and starting lineups they've tried. Um, I genuinely think they might be like on course to to break some sort of record because I, I can't think of a game where they've played the same lineup twice. No, it, it's been all over the place and seemingly at random. I mean, like they played, uh, am I correct in thinking they played... I think Kukure at the weekend, which we'll go on to talk about a bit against Brighton rather than Ben Chilwell, which maybe you're sort of trying to get Kukure up to speed. Oh, no, no, no. It was the game beforehand against Wolves, Lampard's first game. And I was like, why are you playing? So it's even less sense. Why are you playing Kukure here when Chilwell's just come back in and it's been a lot better? And now you're benching him for the guy who's been like one of Chelsea's worst players this season. Kind of made sense with Potter because they came through together-ish, but Lampard? <laughs> Yeah, you would think so. Well, so yeah, Chilwell, Chilwell started against Brighton. Yeah, he did. He did. It was against Wolves that Kukurea started. I was getting my Chelsea losses yeah. mixed up. It's too many too recently. <laughs> How do you tell between them? Um, they are all pretty abject. Um, yeah, uh, you know, rotating players, trying different things. I, I don't blame Lampard for doing it because he does need to get back to speed with, with the team and you do need to try things until something works. To be honest, like, nothing's working. Um, so I kind of mm. get why he's still trying to rotate things. But I feel like no one's told any of the current or recent Chelsea managers that like, if you keep trying a system once or twice, that might give it like time to breathe. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, and as it is, Chelsea are definitely in a downward spiral. I think we could all agree. Um, not sure how many 
losses they've had on the spin, but it is quite a few. Well, under Lampard, four, it's, it's been four, four, four losses, losses on the in spin? a row. Uh, only losses. Yeah. Yeah, that's under Lampard. And mm. then um, they drew with, with Liverpool before that. But like, I, I, I want to sort of end with a, a quick musing on Lampard. I think we'll be back to Chelsea later if we have time. Um, but I, of course, got a lot of flack last week for my assertion that uh, you know, under Frank Lampard in a 38-game season, you'd get zero points. And I would say that was just doing simple maths. But, uh, you know, people have said I need to check my numbers. Well... A popular stat that's been going around this week after the losses to the first three losses was that Frank Lampard has only got one win in his last 17 games as a manager, which is a crazy stat. It's even crazier that's when low. you when you see that of the remaining 16 games, only two of those were draws. Now, bear with me here, Rupert. That's five points wait, across wait, 17 wait. games. <laughs> For 14 losses in 17 games. Yeah. And two draws. So that's five points that's, from 17 games. If you crunch those numbers, that's a 0.27 points per game <laughs> over the course. <laughs> now, of course, that, that, that was one. That, that was a 0.29. If you add in tonight's loss, it's a 0.277 uh, points per game. Now, if you times that by 38 over the course of a 38 game season, you might expect Frank that's Lampard to get you 10 and a half points. points. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Ten and a half points. So, so listen, I'll concede. I'll concede to the listeners that I was maybe a little bit harsh and I stripped Frank of his 10 points. Still pretty bad, though. Yeah, that's good. Uh, very, what a very magnanimous, uh, reluctant omission that is um, <laughs> from you. Uh, you're very, very brave to come out and say something like that. A lot of admiration for you. Um, yeah, he's... Well, uh, I, I still I'd think also, deep down... I'd also be right. really interested to see... Sorry, I still I still think deep down I am right because in his second stint at Chelsea he's got four games and four losses so I, I'm sticking with zero points over the course of the season but in the interest of playing both sides he'd have ten and a half points. <laughs> I'll just, I'm just going to leave it where it is. Um, what I would be interested to see is like what the collective threat level of all of those teams that he failed to beat is because he's not playing hard games. Um, you know, Brighton away, Brighton, Brighton at home is. It's they're, they're they're a good team this season, but it's not unwinnable. Wolves not very much not unwinnable, um, and I, I'm pretty sure at Everton he was almost performing better in the big matches than the small ones. Um, does seem to be that he's got a problem with how he sets up his team and how he motivates them, or or the tactical configurations that he goes for. I don't know what it is, but something if not some things need to change. More on Chelsea later, I hope, when we talk a little bit more about that game and where things went wrong for Chelsea, right for Brighton, who, of course, uh, went to the bridge without any of their usual staff from the start of the season because they were either there at Chelsea or uh, planning a holiday with uh, Graham Potter. Uh, let's look first <laughs> at West Ham 2, Arsenal 2. The Sun ran the back, line, uh, back page headline yesterday, I'm forever blowing doubles. Uh, which I thought was, in classic Sun fashion, uh, a pretty good pun. Not a great newspaper, good at their back page puns. Um, I'll be honest, I actually loved that, and I thought it was one of the best ones I'd seen. It it was brilliant. But let me pose you this question, uh, because we've agreed immediately that it's a good headline, uh, so I don't need to ask you about that. (laughs) Have they fucked it? Um, Oh, it's it's a tough question. Um... No, because they can still, you know, draw with City and be ahead. But yes, because 
you can't blow a 2-0 lead when you're in that position. Um, uh, so it's tricky because this is not a new Arsenal. This is this is the Arsenal we've seen all season. They're very good when they go down, um, as in they go down by a goal. They're very, very shaky when, when they go ahead early. Um, I mean, we I think we literally talked about this last week, about how Arsenal, I just don't back them if they go one or two nil up. Um, I think I literally said those exact words. Um, and it, it's a consistent problem for them. Um, have they fucked it? It kind of has to be yes, but it's not it's not un, uh, unfixable. It's interesting the point you made there about not trusting them when they go ahead versus trusting them when they go down because I, I thought... So Jamie Carragher made a, a similar point. Um, a lot of people after this game have been sort of saying, oh, you know, Arsenal have bottled it here and Arsenal have sort of... Uh, or they've sort of talked about Arsenal losing their nerve sort of when the title running comes. And Jamie Carragher made the point that he was like, I actually think it's the opposite. I don't think it's that Arsenal have sort of come to the run-in and they've started to lose their nerve. I think they've actually got too confident and they've started to believe their hype a bit too much. Because in both of these games, you know, here and against Liverpool, they've gone 2-0 up. You you can't play like they've played in the first 30 or 45 minutes if, you've, if you're, you know, overtaken my nerves. They've come out clearly absolutely full to the brim with confidence, played some absolutely exceptional football, and then it's when the sort of the individual errors start or the little sort of mistakes or the little sort of, you know, lapses in, in mental concentration that have sort of come when maybe they've already thought they've won the game. And it's easy to see how, you know, you score two goals in 10 minutes and you're absolutely dominating West Ham. Maybe you do start to think you've won the game and you start to think you've already got a hand on the trophy. And I think that's something that we don't often talk about when we talk about you know, things crumbling towards the back end of the season. Normally, the sort of go-to is, oh, they've bottled it, oh, they've lost their nerve, oh, they've sort of succumbed to the pressure. But I think it does happen to teams as well. Like, we do see it happen, you know, we're uh, we're all eagerly awaiting another edition of Manchester City in the Champions League semi-final or final, where Pep gets very confident Hmm. and uh, plays Phil Foden in goal. Uh, I, I think we do see, but we don't talk about it as much, like when teams get too confident. I think in this game, you know, the whole turnover started with Thomas Partey doing a little bit of a sort of clever, cheeky flick inside his own sort of 25-yard line and Declan Rice taking it off him. And I think you don't do that if you're at nil-nil, uh, or definitely not a 1-0 down. So, so I definitely take your point that maybe this is the thing with Arsenal is that actually they're in a position where they kind of want to be 1-0 down or level. Because when they're 2-0 up, things start to loosen. And I think once you... Once you, it's like when you sort of go for a, a jog in a park and you've been jogging a fair amount of time. As long as you keep jogging, you're fine. As soon as you stop jogging, it's really hard to start again. And I think it's the same thing in a football match. Once you take your foot off the gas and you know you've you've stopped clicking, it's really hard to get it clicking back again. You've got however many hours before the game starts, you know, in the team bus or in the dressing room, wherever it is, to get into your mental state. But if you let that slip during the game, I don't know that you have enough time to get back into the zone. No, well, it's. <sighs> It's tricky. I think I think it depends. You need a half time to do it if you are going to be able to do it. Um, and unfortunately, again here, the half time team talk wasn't good enough because they went in two one up and then they conceded within ten minutes. Um, and at that point, you would think that Arteta would be going, you know, lads, they're back in this game. They fought back. They they you know come back into this game. We need to make sure we don't let this slip. Um, and 
they they obviously did. Um, I, I feel like it almost just seems to me as if Arsenal only have one type of motivation, which is that lads, no one's ever gonna, no one, no one still believes that we can do it. Let's prove them wrong, and then and then they just go out with that fire, and then as soon as they start dominating a game, they're like, "See, we proved everyone wrong," and then. They yeah, don't have okay, another... 10 minutes done, or 20 minutes done, or whatever it was, yeah. <laughs> it was 10 minutes. Um, it's like they don't have another another way to like get themselves going, that makes sense? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that, that's. I think we were saying the same thing in, in different words there, really. And yeah, I mean, the, t- the halftime team talk can sometimes be that, but I, I always feel like anecdotally, the big sort of comebacks happen at halftime are from a team that's been like really bereft. And that like, what I'm talking about is when someone's on top and then they have a slip and then can they get back on top? Um, then my jogging metaphor wasn't perfect. But... It's it's interesting now because yeah, you, as yeah, you say, sure. everyone sort of is looking at it. Even the bookies are sort of going City are the favourites now, and everyone's sort of looking at the game at the Etihad as a bit of a foregone conclusion. And you know, there's a case to be made that the way that Arsenal play this season, it shouldn't be. I just don't know. I I, I don't think City have beaten Arsenal eleven times in a row. Is it? I I can't see Arsenal going to the Etihad and, and getting a result. I did see someone. I can't remember who I was. It Mika Richards maybe, uh, who was saying like, oh, you know, now you know you might not think, agree with this, but like it, it's a good thing having dropped these points because now it's really lit a fire under Arsenal, and they know there's no room for manoeuvre. And you know, we could be here you know, probably not next week, but week after next, looking at that game, going, you know, if if there's that 1% chance that Arsenal do win it, you would take that trade all day because it's a six-pointer and it's going to sort of derail City's sort of, you know, winning run to the end of the season. I, I just don't know that I see it happening. Well, I mean, if you think about what we've just discussed, which is that when they think that they've won it, they capitulate. I don't think they're going to think that they've won it until the very last kick of the game against City. And I think that they could well go like very under the cosh at times. So in theory, they can bag a late winner. Uh, you know, if the game the game creates that, I could see I could see them getting a point from it. I could see them um, potentially grabbing three, but I think it's unlikely. Um, I, I again feel like I back them more in, to play well in this game over 90 minutes than I do against West Ham. Yeah, it's it's funny actually. I, I was playing a game with a mate at work the other day uh, where we were predicting the run-ins for Manchester City and Arsenal. So we were sort of writing down what we thought each score would be. This was from like two weeks ago, um, and I, I predicted this game as two-two. I don't know why, but I was like, for some reason, West Ham away. I just see Arsenal dropping points there, uh, and then I watched it on the weekend, and I was like, oh, that's so weird. Like not remembering that I read that, I was like, oh, I can't believe Arsenal dropped points there. And I looked at the back of the text, and I was like, huh. That is weird. <laughs> maybe we got to start back up our score predictions. <laughs> the score. Maybe, maybe you're running hot. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I thought um, not great for Arsenal. It's two losses in the same way. I think whenever you lose, or not two losses in the same way, two losses of points in the same way, so two draws. Uh, I think whenever you drop points in the same way twice, it's not a good sign. And whether you want to call it a bottling, whether you want to call it overconfidence, this is kind of what everyone sort of thought might be coming since about game week four, when Arsenal were sort of, <laughs> I think they've been top of the league since game week two, but you know, since things settled down a bit and everyone's been going, well, they're up there now, but sooner or later it'll come. The branches will start to crack and the elephant will fall down. And I think maybe these last two weeks have been the start of the branches cracking. Well, did you know that... Arsenal are only the fifth ever side in the Premier League to have given up a two-goal lead 
in consecutive matches. Yeah, well, there you go. That's uh, that's a very impressive stat and, and kind of says it all, really. I think for that not to be front of mind immediately after the Liverpool game, to be like, we go 2-0 up, let's not stop there. You know, especially at 10 minutes in, let's not stop there. Let's go for a third. Let's re- let's make sure this game is put to bed. Uh, and to have that fail twice isn't great. I also just thought, like, again, another game where the substitutes were just nowhere near good enough. Bringing off Gabriel Jesus again uh, when it's at 2-2. Gabriel Jesus, who, you know, I know he's coming back in from an injury, but... He's so important to the way that Arsenal move forwards. He's so good at holding up that play. He's been scoring goals since he's come back for fun. Um, to, to bring him off was was just terrible. I, I don't think that Martin Erdegaard should ever be off the pitch for Arsenal unless they're about 5-0 up. I, I think it's crazy to ever take him on because he's at the heart of everything they do. So to take him off, uh, you know, Eddie Nketiah, who's a striker, I think makes your attacking prospects worse because that's how integral he is to the to the way the team works. And when you take him off, there goes your chance to have like a, a laser pass put through to the back post at the ninety fifth minute or something. Um, even if it is, you know, for a striker, I, I think the subs have been all wrong um, in both games. I think they might have fucked it. Yeah, I mean the 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 subs the subs when when they're chasing a winner, Jorginho for Jesus. Horrible. Trossard for Partey, fine. Fabio Vieira for Kieran Tierney, I don't like that. Reese Nelson for Gabriel Martinelli, I don't like that. Eddie Nketiah for, for Martin Odegaard. I get it at the time because you need a striker then, but like, I also don't like that. I don't think any of them had the impact that, um, that Arteta wanted. Well, obviously they didn't because they didn't win the game. Um, I do also think that in terms just, of those subs, like both games, this and the Liverpool game, Bukayo Saka has not been taken off. And I think Bukayo Saka's been incredible. I mean, every you know, you'd have, you'd have to have no eyes or, you know, just be completely not not a football fan to not see that Bukayo Saka's been exceptional this season. He's had two bad games. And those are the times when you're not bringing him off for Trossard rather than Martinelli or Jesus, who've both had pretty good games in the last two games. Uh, but Saka has... Also, like, on. give the guy a rest. Well, exactly. He's I, played I, every minute. I, I don't blame him for for dropping off because he's, you know you got to run out of steam at some point. Do you think that these games have shown us any tactical failings beyond you know subs and and motivation? Is there anything that um, you know that you think City will look to capitalize on? Um, you know, errors that they're prone to, weaknesses in their system, anything like that. Well, I, th- I think the two major weaknesses are, firstly, you know, in this game, having Kieran Tierney and, uh, you know, for, for Alex Inchenko, I think Kieran Tierney is a really good left-back. And I think you could make the case that he is every bit as good a left-back as Zinchenko, but they're just very different kinds of players. And I think the tactical, you know, oversight to play well, Kieran Zinchenko Tierney... Zinchenko was injured. Zinchenko was injured, but what I'm saying is, when you're playing Kieran Tierney, and this has happened a couple of times this season, when you're playing Kieran Tierney instead of Alex Zinchenko but you try and have your left-back play the same role, which is sort of that stepping into midfield thing, which Zinchenko has done brilliantly all season. That's not what, something that Kiarantini is very good at. Kiarantini is a really good crosser of the ball. He's really good at running the lines. He's rapid. He's a better defender than, than Zinchenko, but he's not very comfortable at stepping inside. And so, you know, it, it's a bit square peg into a round hole when you put a player like that into that position and you want him to do exactly the same thing. I think it maybe shows a little bit of managerial naivety Um if you're expecting different players to fulfill the exact same roles, maybe maybe a little bit further down your project when you've had the chance to buy the exact same, you know, sort of understudies who can fulfill the same role. But 
that's never been Kieran Tierney's strong suit. And so to have him in as a like-for-like replacement when you could just shift the way you play slightly, especially against, and no disrespect to West Ham, they came away with a point in this game, but when you saw how they were playing against Arsenal in this, you know, the first sort of half, or the first 30 minutes, certainly, you would think you can afford to be a little bit tactically flexible and not play the way you've played every single game. And the other thing is just obviously having Rob Holding uh, instead of um, William Saliba. I think this wasn't Gabriel's best game either, but I kind of feel for him when you are playing one and a half roles uh, because you're trying to cover for where someone else yeah. has a few shortcomings. So I think those are the two things for me. One is, I mean, both are caused by injury, so they're not tactical per se. Um, but I do feel like you know, expecting Tierney to, to play exactly the same way is a little bit risky. And then I, I do just wonder if there's not a way to play around holding, if there's not a way to, whether it's playing a back three. Like another thing that would be more tactical, you know, Kieran Tierney has played as a centre-back uh, for Arsenal in, in recent games. This wouldn't work, obviously, in this game where... Um, where Zinchenko was injured as well, but against Liverpool, for example, or, you know, Ben White can play as a centre-back. I don't know who you'd bring in as a right-back now with um, Tommy Asu injured, but... I'm just not sure about this holding at centre-back uh, issue. I think everyone's sort of seen him as a weak spot and you know, players have been identifying that. And if he plays against City, Haaland's going to be running at him 100 times every game because he knows that's where the, you know, the, the weak link in the chain is. Um, so, yeah, that's, maybe that's a scary it's prospect tough to call for those, fan. Maybe it's tough to call those tactical failures because they are caused by injuries. But I wonder if there's not a better way to sort of solve that riddle than what was done. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's tricky because Zinchenko, Saliba and Tomiyasu are all injured at the same time. Um, and, you know, I, I think the only defender that, or the only defenders that um, Arsenal had on their bench were um, Walters and Kirior, neither of which I would put above Rob Holding to put in centre-back um, at all. So I, I hear you, but I think it's, just the case that Arsenal don't have a, a massively deep squad. Um, yeah, well, maybe I could mean, have shored up. Um, maybe could have shored up. I mean, think about January, right? We talked about um, failings. Imagine if Arsenal had someone that they could draw on that yeah. was a bit more of a target man um, that would complement Kieran Tierney, who wants to whip balls in. Uh, imagine if they had another centre back that they could they could reach to um, instead of Rob Holding. Um, these are imaginings because they didn't do it. Yeah, it, it, it really is. I, I think there's just going to be a part of me that wonders, you know, we're looking at these two games and I think a lot of people will look at this as a turning point in Arsenal season if they go on to not win the Premier League. I think for me, the big turning point in, in Arsenal season might well be, you know, a few weeks back when Arsenal played against Sporting in the Europa League and a lot of people looked at the lineup that Mikel Arteta brought out and went, this is a really strong lineup when you're chasing in the league, mate. And he started Tommy Asu and he started Saliba, and they both got injured in that game. And, and that's caused a lot of the problems we're talking about right now. Um, I do wonder if Arsenal now go on to not win it, if that's going to be something that sort of haunts Mikel Arteta as he's sort of rocking in his chair in the San Sebastian in his old age. Uh, if he's thinking, why didn't I just play a, set, a full second string? It was the Europa League. We lost anyway. Who really cares? And I could have done something amazing. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, a very good point. And probably probably a good point to end on for Arsenal at the moment. Um, I think all eyes are just looking to see what happens uh, in the City game. And, and I would not write them off just yet. Um, but it's not looking great. 
No, no, you're right. Well, let's let's see. We've got a, a very exciting game that you and I are, are watching at a pub together, uh, which will be good fun uh, next Wednesday. Oh, we sure do. Uh, I think I booked that table. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I hope you do, because I imagine for that game, we will not be able to walk in. <laughs> uh, let's look at a bit of useless trivia uh, before we move into our next game. Uh, I've got an interesting one for you, uh, which is all about Bramall Lane. Uh, of course, uh, ah. very, very old uh, football ground uh, that Sheffield United call their home. Uh, arguably, according to Sheffield United themselves, this is off their website, the most historic football stadium in the world. Opened in 1855, it was designed primarily as a cricket and athletic stadium, but has hosted more than 16 different sports within its boundaries during its history, including cycling, rugby, lacrosse, baseball, basketball, and of course, football. In fact, it hosted its first game of football on December 29th, 1862, to raise money for a charity wow. campaign, the Lancashire Mills Distress Fund. The game was between Sheffield FC and Hallam FC. Now, that sounds like a long time ago, but to put it into context of exactly how long ago it was, that game, the first game at uh, Bramall Lane, was played during the American Civil War. <laughs> And and not like towards the end of the American Civil War. The American Civil War started in 1861. This took place a year later. Wow, that's uh, it's impressive. Yeah, so you know a uh, a very 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 old and uh, historic stadium there. I never knew that. That's I mean that's got to be one of the one of the oldest stadiums. The oldest stadium. What, what is? The oldest stadium in the in the UK. Well, I suppose I suppose it, it depends on what you classify as a stadium, because uh, you know, as Sheffield United themselves admit, Bramall Lane was not originally uh, built as a football stadium. It was built sort of as a cricket athletic stadium, and a lot of uh, you know football grounds as they are now would have been built sort of as multi-purpose, or they might have been you know a lot of. I think, like, you know, Milan were AC Milan Cricket and Football Club. So what constitutes a football stadium? Which is a, a bit of a philosophical question if you think about it. Uh, and I'm sure that much <laughs> like the question of who is, is the oldest, you know, football club in, in England and who's the oldest football club in the world, et cetera, et cetera, everyone has their own sort of distinct claim to which rival fans say, well, actually, they were playing bulls at this ground in 1848, so it doesn't count. <laughs> so, you know, who knows? I thought it was just uh, confirmed Notts County, wasn't it? For oldest oldest club. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like the <laughs> that's the most sort of like commonly accepted answer. There are a few other clubs, uh one of which is Stoke City actually, uh, that have sort of laid claim to it at times. Uh Sheffield oh, well, FC yeah. uh have laid claim to it. One of the Sheffields. She- yeah. she- Sheffield FC, I'm actually I'm looking at the page on uh uh Sheffield United's page right now where they're saying the world's oldest club, Sheffield FC, and they've even denied uh Notts County for being the world's second oldest club because they call that Hallam FC. Uh, so everyone has their own little slice of history, and you know how these things are. It's impossible to really ever prove exactly. Like I think football historians have come to a consensus, but there's always going to be people who go, "Well, you don't know about the this meeting when we officially <laughs> formed it at this time." <laughs> we didn't tell anyone at the time, but we actually established a club five years earlier. Exactly. Uh... So. And, and you know what? Just because yeah, the historians think it's such uh, such a way now, there's always new things being discovered. There might be some document discovered in a year or so that says actually it was such and such a club. So who knows? True enough. Um, well, I I enjoyed that. That was fun. I don't think I have a as as exciting a a useless trivia for you um, this week, but one that just blew me away because um, of how impressed I was by it. And it's about uh, it's about a man 
by the name of Kevin De Bruyne Ooh. because uh, this weekend um, he got, um, I believe it was his 15th assist, um, which means that this is the fourth season in which he has had 50, more than 15 assists. Um, and only one player in the entire history of the Premier League has ever got more than one. And that's Cesc Fabregas on two. Um, so just in terms of like, what an impressive player he has been, um, how consistent his attacking output has been um, to have four leagues, league seasons with 15 assists and only one other player has more than one. It's just mm. mad. That is very impressive. And he's done that, of course, with the help of another record breaker or record equaler, uh, I suppose, uh, Erling Haaland. Uh, but he will be a breaker, I imagine, fairly soon. He's got a few more games to break it. <laughs> I think it would be fair to fair to put uh, a good amount of money on um, him him breaking the record. It's, cra- hey, it's crazy that he's going to also... break the, probably he's going to break not only the 38-game record, which is already equaled with Mo Salah, but also likely break the 42-game record of Andy Cole and Shearer um, in mm-hmm. less games. Watch, watch Rob Holding break his legs. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, saw, I saw, actually, I saw, who knows if this is, uh, well, I, there's no, this isn't from a verifiable source. It was just someone's, you know, tinfoil. But, you know, I, I, I choose to believe most conspiracy theories that Pep Guardiola had <laughs> substituted um, Erling Haaland off against Leicester at the weekend in order to preserve his breaking of the record for their next Premier League game, which is, of course, against Arsenal, to sort of, like, make sure that he was extra hungry. Well, and also maybe to, like, put a bit of... Uh, would that mess with Arsenal's heads? Maybe. Who's to say? Maybe. It, it, it could be like 4D chess from Pep Guardiola, or it could just be that he took him off because he was resting him because <laughs> they got a lot of games. I feel like anything, any any random move that Pep Guardiola makes could be 4D chess or could just be his whims. Yeah, 100%. That, that, that's that's the, the coin flip. Exactly. Um, but there you go. Uh, Haaland, obviously, very impressive season. Kevin De Bruyne behind him, too. A very impressive season. There was one other thing actually that I that I saw, which is quite funny. Um, there are only three players in the Premier League that have got a uh, a goal and an assist in in a, in a single game um, this season. Uh, would you care to venture a guess as to who those three players are? Kevin De Bruyne is one of them. The three players have got a goal and assist in the same game. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna say Bukayo Saka is one of them. Uh, Bukayo Saka is not one of them. Really is. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. On three occasions, I didn't say that. Um, there are three, three, um, three players have got a goal and assist in three different Premier League games this season. Apologies. Interesting. Okay, how about Mohamed Salah? Nope. Real. Okay. Interesting. Uh, Harry Kane. Nope. Kaoru Matoma. <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> all right, put me out of my misery. I can be here all day. Uh, Kevin De Bruyne, um, the other one, coming from City's attack as well, could have guessed, Phil Foden. Um, and the third one, Dominic Solanke? God, God you should have saved that for you. That's a, that's a little bonus. You could have saved that for another week. There you go. No, two for the price of one. Two for the price um, of one. There you go. Lucky listeners. Uh, not unlike Dominic. Let's move into... Uh, the next game, Leeds 1, Liverpool 6. Uh, are they back? Top 4? Or will they immediately lose at home to Nottingham Forest at the weekend? You decide. <laughs> uh, 
I think I think this was a bit of a I think this was a bit of a turning point personally. I I might all be proved wrong. Uh, it might be a, a false dawn, but I, I felt like the way they won it, they just blew leads out the water. Um, and the individual performances of people like Trent Alexander-Arnold, who I think got did he get two assists in this match. He did indeed. Um, Finally liberated from the shackles of right back and playing as a sort of midfield role, which uh, everyone has been, you know, calling for from their armchairs for, you know, weeks and weeks and months and months and years and seasons and whatever. Uh, and he's finally sort of gone into this hybrid uh, sort of DM role and he excelled. He did, yeah. Um, and, you know, all three um, players across the front line getting goals, Gakpo with a goal, Jota two, Salah two. I, I just think, all in all, if they kept a clean sheet, that would have really been the, the cherry on top. But I think the way they won it was such a such a bang that I think we will see a bit of an uptick and I think we could see them, you know, sneak back into the top, top four or five. Lest we forget though, Rupert, the reason I brought up Nottingham Forest is the last time Liverpool had an absolutely, you know, sensational return to form, massive 7-0 win over their dreaded rivals, uh, they then lost 1-0 to Bournemouth in the following game. And I think the way the season, I'm starting to understand the way <laughs> the, the, the season is moving. I think they've played this exceptional game here against Leeds and they're going to now lose at home to Forest the next game. I like it. <laughs> I think it would be... It would be tough. That would be that would be a tough pill to swallow um, for for Liverpool and indeed Liverpool fans, um, especially given that I don't think uh, Nottingham Forest have won a game since the beginning of February. Um, but they did recently draw with Man City one one, so mm. it could well be that that maybe uh, maybe they managed to frustrate. They do often tend to score a goal. It do our Nottingham Forest. Um, you know, I would say. I think they've only they've only not scored in one of the last six games. Mm-hmm. Um, oh no, sorry, that's actually a complete lie because they also didn't concede, didn't score against Man U. Yeah, maybe <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've bottled that. Well, they're now in um, the bottom three. I think I think I think Liverpool will. I think Liverpool will. They've got to. They've got to batter Nottingham. Well, they're, they're um, in the bottom three, so they'll be, they'll be fighting hard for it. Um, Leeds That's true. are a team who are not in the bottom three, and that kind of surprises me at times. I like Leeds, as, as, as you know, a bit of a soft spot, even after they brutally sat the greatest manager in football history, present or future. Um, but at times I've watched them this season, and I'm I'm surprised they aren't bottom and haven't been for a while. Obviously, I know Southampton have been quite bad, and there are other teams who have been you know pretty stinky this season. But like Leeds, so many games where I'm just like, you can't do anything even close to right. This is really bad football. Yeah, I mean the problem that they have at the moment is that they they can't seem to stop conceding goals. Yeah, um, well, they've had three consecutive conceded- managers. Same same problem. Three consecutive managers. Well, uh, and that too. Um, I mean, they've conceded 11 goals in the last two games, which is pretty damning. Um, I think, from what I can tell, they just seem to be pretty pretty intermittently okay. Um, you know, this is a team that drew against Brighton, um, something that Chelsea couldn't do. Um, you know, they, they, bat- they put four past Wolves. Um, they're beating teams like Southampton um, 1-0. One, one um, getting points off Man U. Like the um, worst team in the league. 
Well, yeah, no, but but also a direct rival for bottom three. Yeah, I suppose, but... I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. They did also lose to Nottingham Forest 1-0 in February. Um, so, you know, that's... <laughs> That's that's by the by. Um, uh, from what I can tell, they just seem to be not doing as badly as as the other teams around them. I think um, you know you've you've pointed out in the past that um, the bottom eight teams are all pretty pretty close together, and I don't think it's because they're all doing consistently well as each other. I think it's because they're all playing as bad as each other. Um, and yeah. it, it does seem like you know if you just look at recent form, um, Wolves have won a couple of the last few games. Bournemouth have won a couple of the last few games. West Ham have won a couple of the last few games. Leeds have won a couple of the last few games. Everton have won one of the last few games. Forest, none. Leicester, none. Southampton, none. Like, it is just that they're playing slightly better. The only the only thing you would need to do to do better than the bottom four teams below Leeds would, would be to win one game, or two games maybe, in the last five, six games. So you know, they're not asking a lot of them to stay up. Yeah. No, you are right. Let's whip through uh, the next three games that we've got here. Uh, we have got a couple of success stories of teams trying to clamber into the top four, uh, at least. Uh, sorry, at most, and, and the top six, at least. Uh, one team that has uh, fallen from grace a little bit in recent weeks and seems not being able to get things right. One team that is performing uh, under par as ever. And one team that just everything is going just horribly this season. Let's start, and those all sound quite similar, so I'm going to say some of the team names. Let's start <laughs> with Chelsea 1, uh, Brighton 2. A game with one Graham Potter replacement bashing another. How interesting. It was funny, wasn't it? Um, you know, Potter's disciples. Mm. Well, less, probably, less disciples, probably, more probably replacements. Neither, probably neither would accept <laughs> that mantle. Neither would accept that. <laughs> um, but, although, although yeah, strangely, I mean, if one of them had to, I have a feeling it'd be deserved. It'd be like, oh, he left me a great system. Whereas Frank Lampard would be like, this is all these players are crap. Yeah, well, I don't know, Joe. I was I was looking a little bit more into Brighton, and Deserby has made quite a few significant changes since he joined them. He hasn't just stuck with the, the system that he inherited. Um, he's doing some quite interesting things um, with. Uh, you know, creating space to attack um, and using um, oh, what's this word that I there's, there was this phrase that I was I was reading about. It's called um, m- minimum width. You come across that? <laughs> I think I I think I came across it. Um, it was in a like a Syria Chevron, and it was talking. Yeah, I was talking about the team's minimum width. I'd never seen it before, uh, and I'm still not sure I know what it means. But I saw it was like minimum width eighteen feet, and I was like, okay. In a chevron, like, like a car. No, no, like a what, what? What do they call it? Like a you know, not not chevron. That's the like arrow thing. Like one of those little vogues, the little things they bring up. Like the, oh, what like the a, little stat like banners across the bottom of the screen. Little little stat, yeah, okay, a little little stat center um, thing that popped up. Um, yeah, so so the 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 idea of minimum width is basically um, that. You know, you know the term maximum width, right? Have you come across that before? It's when you just get as much width as you can on the pitch um, and you you throw your wingers as, as far wide as you can uh, and that pulls apart the defence. Mm. Minimum width is the idea that you can still pull apart the defence but you don't need to be right on the touchline to do it. So the minimum width as defined is basically the smallest width that you can have while still creating 
that split separation in the defence. So um, you got it. Actually, Donny van der Beek used to do it quite a lot um, at Ajax. And it's something that Eric ten Hag does quite a lot as well. Um, But you basically, you have your player, instead of like running to the touchline, you have him kind of like just on the shoulder of the defender. And what it means is that they still need to drop deep to um, to be able to see the player that they're marking and and the the ball, um, and they still create that space between the fullback and the centre back, for example. But it also means that not only are your attacking players slightly closer together, which is good, but it also means that in a transition, that that attacking player that then becomes the defender is much closer to um, any defender to press um, and press effectively. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting concept. Um, but um, Robert Deservey has, has been doing some quite cool things. Um, I think especially with um, the way that he's been building up from the back, um, and he does things like um, he creates artificial um, counterattacks by using a low, a low defense to encourage um, teams to press them harder, and then and then plays through that. So it kind of almost artificially creates a counter-attacking space behind. Um, and that's something that actually Pep Guardiola has started doing as well. And he attributed Robert De Zerbi to, um, to that uh, idea. So it's, it's cool. And, I, and I'm, I'm going a very roundabout way to say that uh, De Zerbi has basically picked up a Brighton side that were doing very well and, and were very stable and has added tactical nuances that have elevated them slightly. And... It, it, what we saw on the weekend was basically a team that's very well drilled and knows exactly what they're doing, come up against a team that is a bit lost at sea, um, and it showed they lost 2-1. Excellently summarised. Yeah, I think uh, 2-1 was a, a generous score uh, as well. But yeah, Brighton were, were all over them there and uh, just playing all sorts of width, maximum and minimum. Uh, certainly the width and quality between the two teams is the <laughs> summary of my tactical analysis. I want to move on quickly, though. Oh, yeah. uh, I, I don't know if I'd explain that well at all, so I apologise <laughs> if that was No, it was great. Uh, before we move on to the next game, quick time to pick your brains. Another loss for Chelsea, another loss for Frank Lampard. The concern here, I think, for Chelsea is you get to a point where... Mm maybe it gets beyond a new manager coming in and fixing things, especially when you have a lot of new players. Those first few months, those first few games can be so critical to confidence. And if you don't have that confidence when you start, we can see players never really get that back. Is this a blip for Chelsea? Or can it be salvaged? Or are we getting to a point now where it's so bad that this is going to start to cause issues for years to come? You mean the the performance of the players? The, just just the performances week in week out. These players coming in, whether they're being benched continually, whether they're being started, but they're not being played to to a, to a you know a way that they can show their best uh, attributes. Is is this something that Chelsea fan? If you're a Chelsea fan, are you thinking let's just ride this season out? I mean, you know, different Chelsea fans have different opinions. If you're a you know someone who can fully absorb everything, are you thinking? okay, this is fine, like, you know, it's a bit of a bad season, let's write it off. Or are you thinking, oh no, we need to start coming out of this nosedive because it's not as simple as picking the pieces off the ground next season. If we shatter into the ground, that's going to cause a whole no- like other set of problems. Oh, it's a, it's a big question that you've asked just there. Um, I think that in terms of options it would be much worse 
I mean, unless you can get Nagelsmann tomorrow, I think it'd be really bad to to get rid of another manager, and especially someone with the the club profile of someone like Frank Lampard. Um, I think that would be even more chaotic and um, create even 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 worse of an effect than potentially keeping Lampard for the last six games of the season. Um, I think that it's close enough to the end and it's pretty guaranteed that they will not get Europe that... And, and, and that they won't go down. Like, like we, jo- we, 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 we joke, but like, in all seriousness, they can be fairly confident they've insulated themselves from that. And so even if Lampard, even in a world where Lampard performs to my PPG model and picks up zero points for the rest of the season, Chelsea are probably fine on 39 points. Well, that, ironically, that is the um, isn't that the number that is often touted as like the the minimum that you need to it's, to stay up. It's, it's forty, and so I've seen on Twitter a lot for is the last 40? few weeks, like a lot of Chelsea fans after every game, are like <laughs> the road to forty points continues. <laughs> exactly, um, but yeah, no, I think that um, I think that you just ride this game out, and I think that you you accept that it's going to be a, a slower end of the season, potentially a slow first half of next season but you know being able to focus on domestic competitions because you're not in Europe will will be beneficial um and i think that there are enough good players in this in this squad um and there's enough latent talent by which i mean there's enough talent talent that's currently not um active <laughs> um that you can effectively have a couple of signings quote unquote uh, in the summer by even just getting more out of some of these players. Um, I don't think you'd need to sign a, a, a massive amount of players in the summer. Um, maybe a striker, but but that's by the by. I do I do quite like Amanda Broja. Um, I, I think that you accept that this is a transition and you just sit on it. But I, I tend to be, I tend to lean on the the slightly more conservative choice of, sticking with the manager beyond, like instead of getting rid of them. It's quite rare that I go like, he's got to go um, for, for any manager, um, unless they really do have to go. So so that's that's my that's my opinion. I think he should stay. I, ironically, I think that, um, you know, if Chelsea are going to make the financials of spending hundreds of millions of pounds in the transfer market and then finishing 10th in the league, uh, you know, if they're going to try and make that work, they might have to go into a little bit of a, of a transfer embargo over the summer, at which point it might be a return to what Lampard had when he took over the first time at Chelsea, which was, uh, you know, not being able to sign any players. And he has shown that he's good in, in that environment. He's shown that he's able to work with the players that he's got and and get more out of young players. Um, and we do have a lot of young players that we see in this side. So I think um, I would keep Lampard. Interesting, interesting. Well, let's see which one of us is correct, uh, and if he. Uh... You think you think you think get him gone? <laughs> no, I just think he's going to get zero points. <laughs> um, let's move on to our next game. We've got two more to get through, so let's spin through Spurs two, Bournemouth three. A heartbreaking ninety-fifth minute goal uh, for Spurs by Dango Utara. Uh, Watara, um, and I see that this is one of the games. Uh, didn't notice that uh, both assists uh, for Dominic Solanke. So this is one of his three games. Um, another disappointing game for Spurs, who like Chelsea have sat there managed to bring someone in. Um, but uh, it's just not not really working out for him either. 
No, no, not yet. Um, it's it's been a shaky start, to be sure. Um, and I mean, Spurs have more to lose. I think is the important point to make here. Um, they actually are competing for Europe. Um, they're still currently fifth. Um, they've got well, they would be in Europe if they if they stayed there. Um, Brighton have two games in hand on them, so in theory could go above them. But Spurs are very much still in this this race um, for for Europe, and they've got a couple of tough games coming up. They've got Newcastle away. They've got Manchester United. They've got Liverpool away. Um, they've got Palace, which apparently is now a really tough game. Um, and they've also got Aston Villa away. Um, so, you know, I think that points are going to be few and far between towards the end of the season. Um, they're, they're really going to have to, to fight for them. Um, so it's, it's a worrying sign. Yep, another one to watch out for there. Coming close to time, so we'll cut the Spurs uh, chat there. But a good result for Bournemouth, who have now climbed well out of the uh, relegation zone, at least for now. Fantastic result for them. Uh, The last one, uh, two teams, one very much the form team, one uh, the form team uh, a few months ago, but have sort of uh, given over the crown to the uh, best of the rest team, I suppose. Aston Villa, who have the second best form, uh, or maybe with Arsenal's recent shake, uh, or maybe City have now overtaken them both. Uh, but Villa certainly within the top two teams over the last few weeks. Uh, Unai Emery's Aston Villa absolutely flying. Is it something about teams with Villa in it? Because he couldn't do it at Arsenal, but Villarreal, Sevilla and Aston Villa, he's loving life. <laughs> I wonder how quickly it, w- it will take to get a, a petition to rename or to rebrand the club Aston Villa. Um, but... Aston Villa. Play the games at Villa Park. The Villains. <laughs> exactly. I mean... I- Aston Villa had the best form in the entire league, apart from Manchester City. Um, so it, it's very impressive. Um, I I also said it'd be funny because Aston Villa will get guaranteed Europe now because that's what you know, Emery brings in terms of his uh, his plot armor, um, and it's kind of looking like he might do. I mean, we talk about the the Arsenal City thing at the top. Aston Villa and Tottenham are having a similar thing, which is that. They play each other by the end of the... Um, they're playing each other in round 36. Um, Aston Villa are at home. You've got to back them to beat um, Spurs, at which point they would potentially um, be be going ahead of them. There, there were some point goal difference, but they, they could find themselves in, in Europa League. Yeah. And one player who's had an unbelievable resurgence uh, is Ollie Watkins, who I've always thought is like a solid player, but maybe like just a step off the finished article. But in like the last six weeks or something, he's been unplayable. He's been probably the form player in the league. He's been flying. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think we haven't seen Ollie Watkins under a really successful manager that, that I can think of. Um, and and now, you know, like Emery, does have a really impressive CV and he is, you know, really responding to that. Yeah, he, he really is. And every game, you know, he gets a goal or two, but he could have more. I mean, in this game, I think he could have had about four goals. Uh, so he's, re- and that's this against a Newcastle side that up until very recently have been very hard to break down. Um, so yeah, really impressive and interested to see where both of these teams finish. Uh, more to come on that. I love, um, I also just love the fact that Ashley Young is still playing football in the Premier League. 
<laughs> him and Chase Milner are probably just like they're gonna they're, they're old friends they've been seen it all at this point um and uh, we'll reunite someday in the heat death of the universe uh but that is probably all we have time for this week Rupert great to talk to you as always Cam thank you very much and thank you to everyone at home for listening we'll catch you next time cheers guys bye Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshul.